Good evening to you all. You're very welcome. My name is Shane Hall, and the title to the talk tonight is Philosophy and the End of Suffering. And the subtitle is To Understand It is to Be Free of It. So that's the challenge for you, that if you can understand this talk, you will be free of suffering forever. And if you don't, you don't get your money back anyway. So... <laughs> What I would say also, because it's such a fundamental topic, there's quite a lot in the talk, what I would advise you to do is not to try and remember it as it proceeds, but simply to hear it. If you do that, then when the time comes that you need to remember something, you will remember it. If you're suffering during the talk, you remember every bit of it. All right? <laughs> I'm going to remember every bit of it. All right. Well, the first thing is that it's important to understand the true nature of the creation. The Shankaracharya, the man that the school of philosophy put all its questions to, this is what he said. The design of this universe, expressed by the blissful desire of the Absolute, is very simple. It is designed to produce bliss all the way through. The whole of this creation is for enjoyment, but it is necessary to resort to right ways, right means, and right actions. It has never been said that there will be no difficulties in this creation, which is a blissful creation. But the reason for the creation is only knowledge and bliss. Why then should one find confusion, pain, and fear, and die without any understanding. In this creation, everything exists, plain and simple, even today. But our education, our social and cultural systems, make the simple become complicated, the blissful become painful, and what should be love become fear. Only through the systematic knowledge, which is being given through the scriptures, and through satsanga, which means good company, can people be brought back to the simple way of life, and then they will see for themselves that there is no reason for confusion, fear, or pain. So, in truth, this is a creation of bliss. Suffering may be experienced, but as the Shankaracharya says, there is no reason for it. Now, we need to differentiate between pain and suffering. Again, the Shankaracharya says, there are two effects of disease. One is pain, caused by physical illness, and the other is suffering, like grief or sorrow, which may come through the physical illness. Now, this suffering may arise without a disease, because a number of people are seen to be suffering, without any obvious disease in their body, or without any obvious lack in their life, for they seem to have everything, yet they still live in misery. Physical disease certainly has its pain, just because it is physical, but this pain can be multiplied and increased with the unnecessary addition of sorrow, which is internal, that is, mental and emotional suffering. 
So one can increase or decrease the effect of physical pain. There are examples of people who have had physical pain and yet they do not become full of misery. So the physical pain can come and without much effect leave them when it is due to go. Now given the existence of the body, pain and pleasure are both natural and both inevitable. But suffering is voluntary and is taken on in error. Now secondly, we need to differentiate between bliss and happiness. Bliss is our true nature, it's not a state, and because of this it's ever-present. Its presence may be forgotten by the mind, just as when the mind attends to one person in particular, it may forget the presence of others. Forgotten or not, bliss is always present. Happiness is a state of mind, and the mind can also experience the opposite state, i.e. sorrow. So happiness and sorrow are states of mind, whereas bliss is our true nature, and not being a state, it does not come and go. Now Khalil Gibran says in the Prophet, When you are joyous, look deep into your heart, and you shall find it is only that which has given you sorrow that is giving you joy. When you are sorrowful, look again in your heart, and you shall see that in truth you are weeping for that which has been your delight. Some of you say joy is greater than sorrow, and others say nay, sorrow is the greater. But I say unto you, they are inseparable. Together they come, and when one sits alone with you at your board, remember that the other is asleep upon your bed. Now, if the presence of something brings us joy or happiness, then its absence will bring us sorrow. And this is utterly mechanical and totally inevitable. And if we are in this state, since things come and go, then also so must joy and sorrow come and go for us. And they come in equal measure. The more joy something brings us, so also the more sorrow must it also bring us. Now what is the cause of suffering? Well, the Buddha said, you suffer for yourself alone. No one compels you. And Mother Teresa said, We humans, not God, create pain and suffering. So how could this be? Why would man create suffering for himself? It can only be a mistake. And so what is that mistake? It is a mistake born of ignorance. And a great sage from India called Nisargadatta said, as long as you identify yourself with the body-mind, you are vulnerable to sorrow and suffering. Now, in deep sleep, there is no identification with body-mind, and therefore in deep sleep, there is no sorrow or suffering. 
Now, why should identification with the body-mind lead to sorrow and suffering? Because the body-mind is limited, identifying with the limited inevitably leads to desire in the mistaken belief that with the acquisition of what we desire, life will be less limited. However, desires are never satisfied. They simply increase on being satisfied. To satisfy a desire is like heaping fuel on the fire in order to put the fire out. Also, with the increase in means comes the increase in wants. For example, with an increase in wealth, have we not found that our wants increased also? An old 42-inch plasma screen is not big enough anymore. Desire unfailingly leads to attachment, and with attachment there must be sorrow in the absence of what we are attached to. And this is because we only desire what we do not have. Thus, as the Buddha and Mother Teresa said, we are the source and creators of our own suffering. So let us look at love as an example. The only fruit of pure love is true happiness. But our experience can be that love has brought us sorrow. How? Well, we are all traders in love. Because with attachment, we want a return from what is ours. We do not give and we shall receive, but we give so that we shall receive. Our sorrow does not arise from the love that we give, but from our expectation or demand of love in return. Much of our sorrow comes from being broken-hearted, when people fail to live up to our expectations. Now there is no misery when there is no want, no desire. The great secret of true happiness is this. The man who asks for no return, the perfectly unselfish man, is the most happy, as free of desire, free of expectation, he is also free of misery or sorrow. Now what desire does is to narrow love. When there is no desire, love is for all and is free. But when love is confined by desire and is thus mingled with selfishness, then it causes suffering. Love that seeks nothing for itself could not cause suffering. So there is one cause of sorrow, and that is desire leading to attachment. When we are attached, we are caught. The man of desire is a slave, forever chasing the goods of the world, a desperate and failed attempt to find the limitless in the acquisition of more of the limited. Now the energy that is fed into desires and their attainment is what weakens us. When we become detached, then we regain our natural strength. Then nothing in the world will harm us. Like the healthy man 
surrounded by millions of microbes, who does not succumb to illness, whereas the weakened man, surrounded by the same microbes, does become ill. So, how may sorrow be intensified, or prolonged, or added to, or created? And there are a number of things, I'm sure we recognize this. The first way is by reliving events. We perpetuate our pain, keeping it alive, by replaying our hurts over and over again in the mind, magnifying our injustices in the process. So we pay for the same thing many times. We would not do it for goods, but we do it with sorrow. So you wouldn't go into a newsagent and say, look, can I have the Irish Times and give the person two euro? And then when he hands you the paper, you say, could, look at it, could I give you another two euro? And then when he pockets that, you say, could I give you another two euro? We wouldn't do it with goods, but we do it with sorrow. Again and again and again, we relive the events. The second thing that we do, which helps to increase our sorrow, is we take things personally. We often add to our pain and suffering by taking things personally, being overly sensitive, overreacting to minor things. Taking small things too seriously, we blow them out of all proportion. We personalize our pain and thus narrow our field of vision by interpreting or misinterpreting everything that happens in terms of its impact solely on us. We see them as if they were intentionally perpetrated on us. And then nothing is then perceived as accidental or unintended, but as being deliberately undertaken to hurt us. In the way, when you've invited somebody out to dinner and you're really looking forward to it, they're excellent company, it's an excellent restaurant, and about a half an hour before you're ready to depart, they ring you up and say, by the way, I've come down with the flu. You're really angry with them. They shouldn't do this. They should be healthy on the day that I invite them out. There's no forgiveness in you. You think it's personal. They did it deliberately. They're avoiding the date or whatever it is. Taking things personally leads to the following, as Jacques Lucerion, blind from eight, a founder of a resistance movement, and he was imprisoned in a concentration camp during the Second World War, and he said this, Unhappiness, I saw then, comes to each of us because we think ourselves at the centre of the world, because we have the miserable conviction that we alone suffer to the point of unbearable intensity. The next factor which increases our suffering is whether we respond or react. So whether we suffer or not, depends on whether we react or respond. If someone maligns us and we react negatively, then we destroy our own peace of mind. And this is a very important point. We add as much suffering to the world when we take offence as when we give offence. We may not be able to control negativity or malice in others, but we can determine whether we suffer or not, by whether we choose to respond or react to it. The next factor, which adds to our suffering, 
is the feeling that it's unfair. What's happening to me is unfair. So if we add to our problem the feeling that it is unfair, this additional ingredient is powerful fuel for creating increased mental unrest. Also, the belief in unfairness incapacitates us to solve the problem. The next factor, which is closely related, is the victim identity. We look for someone or something to blame for our suffering. Then I must be the victim of someone or something. And with a victim identity, we can become the perpetual victim of our dysfunctional family, of husband or wife or boss, etc., etc. The next factor which enables us to increase our suffering is guilt. So holding on to the memory of our past transgressions with continued self-blame and self-hatred serves no purpose other than to be a relentless source of self-induced suffering. The only useful aspect of guilt is if it leads to the appreciation and possibility of rectifying things in the future. Otherwise, it is simply a means to enlarge and extend suffering. Guilt arises when we convince ourselves that we have made an irreparable mistake. It makes a transient problem permanent. I don't know if you remember the scene from Gandhi where close to the end of the film he's on one of his hunger strikes and he's doing this in order to stop the conflict between the Muslims and the Hindus. And slowly but surely around India the conflicts begin to subside until there's only conflict in one city, the city where he's actually on this hunger strike. And a gang of Hindus burst into his quarters and some of them begin to put down their arms. But one man said, there's no point in me putting down my arms. I'm damned to go to hell. And he related the story how he had, during the conflict, taken up a Muslim baby and dashed its brains out, killing it. And he said, so there is no salvation for me. And if you remember the scene, Gandhi looked at him and he says, I know a way out of hell. It's fantastic, of course. I know a way out of hell. And he said, what I want you to do is I want you to adopt a child orphaned in this conflict, a Muslim child orphaned in this conflict, and I want you to raise it as a Muslim, which would be, of course, a remarkable challenge for a Hindu. And that is a way out of hell. The next factor which manages to increase our suffering, is resistance. Whatever the pleasure or pain, it will not last. Life is change. To the degree that we refuse to accept this fact and resist natural life changes, we continue to perpetuate our own suffering. If we define our self-image in terms of what we used to look like, or what we were able to do when younger, then we will inevitably suffer as we get older. The more we try to hold on to that which passes, the more grotesque and disturbed life becomes. 
all you have to do is consider somebody maybe that you've seen who's undergone excessive plastic surgery. It's why I cut back on it personally myself. (laughs) (laughs) Even the dog is looking at me strangely now. As Thomas Akempis says, if you bear the cross unwillingly, you make it a burden and load yourself more heavily. I think this is the last factor for increasing our suffering, is to do what our value. And Marcus Aurelius, the great Roman emperor, he said, If you are distressed by anything external, the pain is not due to the thing itself, but to your estimation of it. And this you have the power to revoke at any moment. Our values are false to a large degree. We tend to undervalue and overvalue not seeing things as they really are, i.e. in their true perspective. All this enlarges suffering totally unnecessarily. The wise see things as they are, that is, for their true value. Now, the next factor I'd like us to consider briefly is the false ways of dealing with suffering. Carl Jung said, All neurosis is an attempt to avoid legitimate suffering. Fantastic statement. All neurosis is an attempt to avoid legitimate suffering. Many people develop a variety of strategies for avoiding having to experience suffering. So, for example, drugs, alcohol, refusing to recognize that a problem exists, immersing ourselves in a million distractions, to avoid thinking about the problem, or admitting the problem, but blaming others for our suffering. For example, I am miserable, but it's not me who has the problem, it's the other person. You probably don't recognize any of those. Now, while initially all of these appear to ease the suffering, in the end, the suffering has to be faced. And by then, it tends to be an even bigger problem. The next factor that I'd like us to consider is how to make use of suffering. If suffering is going to visit our lives, well, then how could we make use of it? Well, we should see the good in suffering. It makes us humble. It makes us grateful for what we do have. All adversity that comes to us has a purpose. It's trying to teach us something. And we should look for its lesson. Adversity challenges us and it shows us what we are made of. Rumi said, When someone beats a rug with a stick, he is not beating the rug. His aim is to get rid of the dust from the veil of eyeness, and that dust will not leave all at once. With every cruelty and every blow, it departs little by little from the heart's face. In reality, suffering is an opportunity for growth. Without it, many would be content to live their lives in self-limiting ignorance. It can send us in search of the divine or allow us to acknowledge the power of the Creator. 
I've said this before, but there was a remarkable lady from the Indian tradition called Kunti. And she was a devotee of Lord Sri Krishna. And when it was coming to the end of his life, in honor of her devotion to him, he granted her a boon, that she could have any wish that she wanted. So she asked for adversity. And even he was surprised by this. And he said to her, why do you seek adversity? And she said to him, because I only thought of you in adversity. Thus suffering can turn the mind towards God. Also it infuses mercy into the heart and softens it. The Buddha said that suffering is caused by desire because it is personal and in opposition to God's will. So suffering can also teach us obedience to God's will. Suffering leads men to self-inspection. For example, what mistake am I making that is causing this suffering? Not what mistake did I make that I'm being punished for now, but what mistake is being made now that is causing the suffering now? What ignorance is operating now that I need to go free of now? So suffering reveals the limit of our understanding and provides us with the opportunity to increase it. Again, Khalil Gibran says, Your pain is the breaking of the shell that encloses your understanding. Helen Keller, a remarkable woman, said, Although the world is full of suffering, it is full also of the overcoming of it. To overcome, we must use without limit the body, mind and heart that we have been given. This is to use one's talents. All troubles contain the hidden seeds of good. And this is the challenge, to find them and make use of them. The effects of suffering may be bad, neutral or good, according to the way suffering is endured or reacted to. It may destroy us, leave us unchanged, or develop us. We need to realize that we have the choice. There is no reason to suffer. If we look at our lives, we will find many excuses to suffer, but we will never find a good reason to suffer. Both happiness and suffering are choices. We choose to be happy, we choose to suffer. We may not be able to avoid our destiny, but we can suffer our destiny or enjoy our destiny. Heaven or hell, the choice is ours. Viktor Frankl, who was incarcerated in a concentration camp in the Second World War, this is what he said. Man is ready and willing to shoulder any suffering as soon and as long as he can see meaning in it. He came to the conclusion that survival in the concentration camp was not based on youth or physical strength, but rather the strength derived from purpose and discovering meaning in one's life and experience. And finding meaning in suffering 
is a powerful method of helping us to transcend suffering. Suffering often seems to us to occur at random, senselessly and indiscriminately, with no meaning at all. And we then view our suffering as senseless and unfair and wonder, why me? So we must search for meaning. Now, for many people, the search begins with their religious tradition. In the Buddhist and Hindu model, suffering is a result of our own negative past actions and is seen as a catalyst for seeking spiritual liberation. In the Judeo-Christian tradition, the universe is said to be created by a just and good God. And even though we may not be able to understand this plan, our faith and trust in him allows us to tolerate our suffering more easily. In the Talmud it says, everything God does, he does for the best. So in the Judeo-Christian faith, suffering can test and potentially strengthen our faith. It can bring us closer to God in a very fundamental and intimate way. Or it can loosen the bonds to the material world and make us cleave to God as our refuge. Martin Luther King Jr. said, What does not destroy me makes me stronger. In this way, suffering can test, strengthen, and deepen the experience of life. At other times, suffering can soften us, make us more sensitive and gentle. The vulnerability we experience in the midst of our suffering can open us and deepen our connection with others. So our suffering can enhance our compassion for others' suffering. William Wordsworth said, A deep distress hath humanized my soul. Also, reflecting on our suffering can reduce our arrogance, our conceit like I'm in control, or my life is okay. And one important thing to remember is that the event is not greater than the man. Nothing can overwhelm us or defeat us, but it may require all of us to transcend it. Knowing that we always have the strength to defeat adversity stops all the fear in life. Instead of moaning about our situation, feeling sorry for ourselves, and being overwhelmed by anxiety and worry, we can in fact save ourselves from additional mental pain and suffering by adopting the right attitude. We can resolve that we will take on the suffering to be better able to help others to face or avoid the same situation. And this gives our suffering meaning and turns it into a spiritual practice. And it can then be seen as a sort of privilege to suffer. If we have suffered and understood it, then we are in a position to help others who are similarly suffering. Pain teaches us not to do something, so i.e. putting your hand in the fire. Without pain, we would undoubtedly harm the body. So people suffering from leprosy who cannot experience pain will harm their bodies. 
in the same way as pain protects the body to have a healthy existence, suffering can protect the mind and heart so that we may enjoy mental and emotional health. So we may not enjoy pain, but we can be grateful for the fact that we can experience it. By understanding the cause of suffering, we can develop the resolve to put an end to it and any deeds which contribute to it. So how can we help others with their suffering? And there are three ways. So firstly, when appropriate, and the important thing is appropriate, so when appropriate, give them all the principles and practices that we hear tonight and that we have subsequently put into practice and found useful. Secondly, we can be a reservoir of peace and goodness so that those in need can feed off us. And the Shankaracharya says this, There is a much better way of helping others. It is not to have the desire as such, but to meditate so purely that there is such a wealth of goodness in the individual that anyone who is in need can come and get it naturally. In this way, it will be abundantly available to everyone, very much like the sun, which does not direct its light to any single place, but anybody who wants to have help or light from the sun can take it. So the better way is to have finer energy, or more sattva, which is fine energy, in oneself. This can be used by anybody who needs it. And the third way we can help the suffering of others is we can take on the suffering of others ourselves. And again, the Shankaracharya in the book called Good Company, he tells the story of his guru. And he said, My Guruji once met a disciple who had severe pains in his leg. In compassion, he said to the disciple, Your pain will dissolve. And it did dissolve but it appeared in his own feet. No cure was possible because it was there without any physical cause. The pain lasted for three years, but Guruji never complained. This, of course, is the play of compassion. Some people of pure mind redeem other people's suffering. It costs them suffering but it never affects their minds because no claim is made and no complaint is sounded. The self remains detached as witness and the play simply goes on with minimum disturbance. Now, how are we to reduce our suffering? And there are again many ways to do this. Firstly, we can expand the viewing point. With suffering, there's always a narrowing of the viewing point. So realize that every event has different aspects. What at one angle may seem tragic and unfair, from another angle can be seen to have been an extremely useful experience. So I've told the story many times before, but when I was a young man, the girl I loved, and she died in a car crash. And so when it happened, it 
broke my heart and the grief was just horrendous. I thought it was completely an evil and unnecessary and terrible event. But the miracle of that event is that I have never grieved since. And I've had to bury my parents and people I've loved. It cured this person of grief. So it had its good aspect to it as well. With narrowing of outlook, we may focus unduly on the problem, thinking that we are the only one going through the problem. And this leads to a sense of total isolation. This kind of self-absorption then can make the problem seem very intense. It helps if we realize that many others are facing similar or even worse problems. And when it appears that someone has caused us suffering, we tend to see them as all bad. If we look from a different angle, we see that they also have a lot of positive qualities. And we need to recognize that the tendency to see someone or something as completely negative is due to our own distorted perception based on our mental projection rather than the true nature of the person or thing. If we look carefully, we see also that the act which is the apparent cause of our suffering has also presented us with certain opportunities for growth or self-development which otherwise would not have been available to us. We need to appreciate that hatred is a great block to personal growth. If we can learn to develop patience and tolerance towards our enemies, then everything else in life becomes much easier. Our compassion towards all others will flow much easier. Without adversity, we would never develop patience. The second factor to reduce our suffering is the need for a supple mind. A supple mind allows us to embrace all of our life. Our knowledge of good and evil is so fixed, it is the cause of most of our suffering. Good and evil are our invention. They relate to time, space and valuation. And a very simple example is that if you're a gardener and, you know, you're doing up your garden and you get in a whole load of topsoil and as you pour the topsoil onto the flower beds or the vegetable beds, you feel this soil and think, what magnificent soil, isn't it just so beautiful and perfect and the smell of it and the look of it and it's just great. If you happen to have put a bit of it onto your boots and then you walk into your pale suede pink carpet, which has now got muddy footprints of it, It's no longer delightful topsoil. It's muck. Muck on your carpet. It just depends where it is. On the carpet, it's muck. In the vegetable bed, it's fantastic topsoil. So be slow to judge. And again, you may have heard the story, and I don't have it off perfectly, the Cambodia story about the horse. Do you know that story? Well, there's a man in a village, and... Overnight, this horse appears outside his hut or house and people come up to him and say, gosh, fantastic. And he says, good or bad, who knows? Two days later, the horse gallops off and people come up to him and say, oh, what bad luck. 
And he says, good or bad, who knows? A few days pass by, it's a stallion by the way, he comes back with a mare, right, in foal, and people say to him, gee, you're so lucky. And he says, good or bad, who knows? Anyway, a little while later, his son is riding the stallion and he falls off and breaks his leg. And people say, oh, what bad luck. And he says, good or bad, who knows? Two days later, the Revolutionary Army come into the village and they take away all the young children, except the boy who's broken his leg. And they say to him, what good luck you have. And he says, good or bad, who knows? We're always judging at a point in time, saying, oh, that was great. That was appalling. You should wait till the end of the story. (laughs) Then you'll know. The next factor which will help us to reduce our suffering is the balanced approach to life. The gentle way is the middle way. It minimizes suffering. There's no good in going into a gymnasium and lifting up three-ounce barbells. That won't do you any good at all. Trying to lift up a half a ton will also not do you any good. The middle way. If overwhelmed by the bad, think of the good in our life. Too little money brings suffering. So does too much. I know you won't believe that, but trust me. Too much money brings suffering. Having more than we need causes suffering. An example is food. No matter how good the lobster thermidor is, the third serving is no good to you. Wanting more all the time is simply feeding discontent. If we always want more, we will always feel discontent. The next factor is do not avoid the inevitable. We try not to think of disease, old age and death, but it is better to familiarize ourselves with them. Seeing them as natural and inevitable, the dread for them goes. If not familiar with them, they come as a shock and cause tremendous disturbance. When something moves from difficult to inevitable and is seen as such, it no longer disturbs us. Just repeat that. When something moves from difficult to inevitable and is seen as such, it no longer disturbs us. Do you know when you arrive at the gate or the check-in and you think you can still get on the plane, you can actually see the plane on the runway? and it hasn't taken off, right? And you try to persuade the check-in person to let you off. You know the agony, the absolute agony, as you're convinced I can still get on that plane if I can just persuade this person to let me. But what happens when the plane takes off? (laughs) Then you realise, I'm not getting on this plane. Then all the resistance goes, and it doesn't disturb you. Now there's an opportunity to drink my head off. (laughs) (laughs) The next factor is learn to tolerate adversity in your life. Experience pain as natural. If we have a body, most of you seem to have, it will suffer pain. 
Seeing it as natural, we will tolerate it. Often we reject pain as unnatural. However, see it as a part of life. We see pleasure as a part of life, so see pain in the same light also. Because we see pleasure as success, we often see pain as failure. Just see both as a natural part of existence. The next factor for reducing our suffering is that our beliefs determine the level of suffering. If we believe only in the material, the loss of a loved one is terrible. If we believe in an afterlife or rebirth, it will lessen the suffering. If we know who we are, then there will be no suffering. If we wish to remember those who have departed, the best way is to carry out the wishes of that person. So ask yourself, how would they wish us to behave in these circumstances, that is, after their death, and then do so? And this is really how to honour the dead. The more we value the presence of anything, the more we must suffer its absence. So make sure we value the trivial and unimportant as trivial and unimportant or else we will suffer unnecessarily. Bigger and better things reduce the importance of small and inferior things. So make your life bigger and then you will suffer less. So that will all help us to reduce our suffering. But how can we eliminate suffering? As was said at the beginning of the talk, the true nature of man is eternal bliss. And this is never lost, but it may be covered over and therefore not experienced. All suffering is caused by man not living in accordance with his true nature, or put in another way, is due to ignorance. Since knowledge dissolves ignorance, if man can come to know his true nature again and live in accordance with his true nature, then misery or suffering can be dissolved forever. And this is the total elimination of suffering in the life, irrespective of events and circumstances. To come to know his true nature, man must regain control of his mind and heart. All suffering arises due to lack of control over mind and heart. It is through the conquering of internal nature and not external nature that suffering is brought to an end. So to regain control of mind and heart is to conquer yourself. In the Dhammapada it says, He who conquers in battle a thousand times a thousand men. And he who conquers himself, he is the greatest of conquerors. This greatness has a great reward, freedom from all suffering forever. Now with regard to the mind, the primary need is to restore reason. And all reaction is a lack of reason. Reactions are determined by fixity of ideas. 
They represent rigidity, the strong conviction of what is right and wrong. If the mind operates from true principle and not fixed ideas, then it responds. It finds constancy in true principle and suffering does not arise. So let the mind discover the true principles to live by and then live by them. Principles such as return good for evil, if adopted, lead to freedom from suffering. The second thing that's necessary for the mind is to understand the nature of this creation. All things in the creation are transient, so all must pass. That which brings happiness because of its presence will inevitably bring misery or suffering because of its absence. Because the nature of everything is transient, that which is present must become absent. In this way, happiness and misery follow each other inevitably. The nature of this creation is that you cannot create a wave without creating a hollow. Whatever goes up must come down. Understanding that this is the nature of the creation, we then transcend suffering. The gardener, understanding that it is natural for winter to come, does not suffer when the plants die off. The next factor for the mind is to live in the present moment. Because in the present moment there is no suffering. The present moment does not last long enough for anything to cause suffering. Suffering can only arise when the mind dwells in the past or projects itself into the future. And to control the mind is for it to preside in the present moment. There's a marvellous quote from the Shankaracharya about the present moment. And this is it. The present is always lit because it is the presence of the Absolute and the light of the Absolute falls on the present. There is nothing to worry about or fear in the present. Past and future are very dark and that is where the fears are. And it is only fears of some sort which drag the individuals to the past or the future. It's much better and more economical for us to avail ourselves of the brilliance and the light and knowledge which are of the present, and not to associate ourselves with the darkness which really belongs to the past or future. They visit us and concern us sometimes. Whenever we wake up and find that we are travelling towards the darkness of the past, or the future, please come into the light of the day, the light of the present. The next factor to eliminate suffering is to remember this principle. The large cannot find satisfaction in the small. And this is so obvious that the large can't find satisfaction in the small. And the wise say that man is limitless and eternal. So the limitless cannot find satisfaction in the limited and the transient. So seek your happiness in yourself, in your limitless self. And not seeking his happiness in the creation, man does not find his suffering there either.
The next factor for the mind is to understand what does it mean to suffer. The original meaning of the word to suffer means to allow. So go with the flow. All suffering, as we understand it, is resistance. And this is why Jesus said, resist not evil. Resisting that which we deem to be evil is what causes us to suffer. Suffering comes from the imposition of my will on the creation. My will as simple resistance to thy will. As Herman has said, love your suffering. Do not resist it. Do not flee from it. Give yourself to it. It is only your aversion that hurts. Nothing else. We can choose self-abandonment or self-assertion. With self-assertion comes suffering and with self-abandonment comes, as we would say in religious terms, the presence of God. And in the presence of God there cannot be any suffering. The whole of life is giving and learn that in the end nature will force us to give. So give willingly. We come into this life and start to accumulate, but nature takes it all back again. Whether we resist or hold on to temporarily, all in the long run are compelled to give up everything. So accede to this great demand of nature, let it run its course, and there can be no suffering. Giving does not mean we end up with nothing. Give willingly, and it will come back multiplied a thousandfold. The next factor for the mind is to remember that nothing is personal in this creation. And when we understand this, then we will not suffer. The creation unfolds under law, and law is impersonal. Taking things personally is what causes us to suffer. And there's a nice, well, very informative story from the Buddhist tradition about a lady called Kisagatami. So in the time of the Buddha, a woman named Kisagatami suffered the death of her only child. She went to the Buddha, paid homage and asked, Can you make a medicine that will restore my child? I know of such a medicine, the Buddha replied, but in order to make it, I must have certain ingredients. I require that the mustard seed be taken from a household where no child, spouse, parent or servant has died. The woman agreed and began going from house to house in search of the mustard seed. At each house, the people agreed to give her the seed But when she asked them if anyone had died in that household, she could find no home where death had not visited. In one house a daughter, in another a servant, in others a husband or parent had died. Kisigatami was not able to find a home free from the suffering of death. Seeing that she was not alone in her grief, the mother let go of her child's lifeless body and returned to the Buddha, who said with great compassion, You thought that you alone 
had lost a son. The law of death is that among all living creatures there is no permanence. Kisagatami's search taught her that no one lives free from suffering and loss. She hadn't been singled out for this terrible misfortune. One more factor for the mind is to avail of help. The Shankaracharya says, we get a guiding voice from time to time when we are in difficulties. In order to hear the inner voice, we should pray to the Supreme Lord in solitude with a settled mind. Then an answer to bring us face to face with success is sure to come forth. And the key is with a settled mind. Our mind can be a desperate mind, an untrusting mind, a demanding mind, or a settled, still mind. In a way, only when we shut up can we hear God talking, and he will always guide us if we turn to him. The Shankaracharya says another amazing point. He says, there is one decision that you can make And if you make this one decision, it will be the end of all your suffering. So you're ready to make it, are you? Just one, that's all. One simple decision. And it's not, give me all your money. (laughs) (laughs) Which I wouldn't mind if it was the decision, but it's a different decision. This is what he says. Release from misery comes from true knowledge which takes no account of riches or poverty, sickness or health. Discrimination is the key. Through it, one can see one's own desires for things one lacks. One can also see that those who have the things one covets are not happy. Neither happiness nor misery dwell in things, but in one's own decision made through discrimination that acquisition of worldly things will bring neither. Following that decision, detachment comes, releasing from misery and bringing happiness. That's all you have to do, is make that decision. That happiness and misery do not lie in the possession or absence of things. There is no thing that can make you happy and there is no thing that can make you miserable. And if you decide that once and for all, you'll never suffer again. And the last factor for the mind is identification. We identify with the body-mind-heart. So we say that we are male or a mother or an engineer or whatever. And this identifying results in suffering. The proof of this is that the same problems exist while in deep sleep. But because there is no identification in deep sleep, there is no suffering. However, we cannot sleep all the time, despite some people's best endeavours. The need is to cease to identify with the body-mind-heart in the waking state. And the following are three aids to loosening the bonds of identification while you are awake. The first thing is substitution. 
simply attend to something else. The mind cannot attend to two things at once. So if it attends to something else, it forgets that which is causing the suffering. We can always ask the question, when we are dwelling on our suffering, is there something more useful that I could be doing now? And there always is, and go and do it. The second thing is serving others. And that is similar to distraction and works because the heart is busy caring for others. Being busy caring for others, it is turned outwards. And being turned outwards, it cannot consider its own misery. Only when the heart is turned inwards can it become miserable and suffer. A heart turned outwards is a happy heart, irrespective of circumstances in life. And the third factor is detachment. With detachment we are indifferent to suffering, but only our own. When others suffer, we are compassionate. When we suffer, we are unmoved. We are attached when we hold on to something, and we are detached when we let go. So do not grab, do not resist, just let go. With regard to the heart, the key is acceptance. And to accept is to know how to suffer. Thomas Akempis said, He who knoweth how to suffer will enjoy much peace. Such a one is conqueror of himself and lord of the world, a friend of Christ and an heir to heaven. And to be patient is to accept. And again, St. Philip Neri says, In this life there is not purgatory, but only heaven or hell. For he who bears affliction with patience has paradise, and he who does not has hell. The second thing for the heart to eliminate suffering is forgiveness. And forgiveness is for our own mental well-being, so that we may be free of any wrongs done to us. We need to forgive those who hurt us. They are forgiven because we don't want to suffer every time we remember what they did. And we will have truly forgiven when we can see or think of the person and no reaction arises anymore. It is like being able to touch a wound and it does not hurt anymore. Then we can say it is completely healed. We may protest that we cannot forgive, but the truth is that we've learned not to forgive. We've decided not to forgive. Not forgiving is to do with refusal and pride and not to do with inability to forgive our inflated importance makes it impossible. Our refusal to forgive is seen by us as how we can punish others, but it is we who suffer. And the most important person to forgive is ourselves. We once loved ourselves, and forgiving ourselves restores our self-love. So stop rejecting yourself. Stop carrying all that blame and guilt. All suffering in the end is self-inflicted 
nobody does it to us. Accept who we are and everybody else too. And once we accept who we really are, we no longer suffer. And the third factor for the heart is responsibility and choice. It's always useful to look and see in what way we may be contributing to the problem. When suffering, the tendency is to seek one single cause and then to exonerate ourselves completely from responsibility. Many factors contribute to any event and we should always see our own part in it. Also, a useful question to ask is, can I change how I feel about this situation? And again, the answer is always yes. On realizing this, exercise choice and choose that which is conducive to happiness and not to suffering. So to conclude, happiness and suffering are states and therefore subject to change. We do not want to state. We want to discover the unchanging. The unchanging is beyond states and therefore does not suffer. The spirit does not suffer. The kingdom of heaven is the reservoir of peace and bliss and no suffering can reach there. What is the spirit? It is awareness And it's here right now. It is witnessing consciousness and it is my true self. As awareness, it's fully informed. But as awareness, it does not experience. And again, the Shankaracharya gives a very practical example. He says, in practical life, a doctor operates on patients and knows them to be in pain and misery. But he himself does not experience pain and misery as real to himself. Pain is there, but as information, not as experience. He then relates this to the experience of the person with whom he is in conversation with. The discourse is taking place, and the body is in pain. Things are happening And our true self is just watching. It is neither pleased with the discourse, nor displeased with the bodily pain. It knows, but does not experience. Our true self only does what it is really expected to do. That is, it watches without getting involved. It watches the show and takes no part does not stop the show and the drama goes on. The solution, as the Shankaracharya says, is to go beyond good and bad to the witnessing consciousness itself. These notions of good and bad constantly create conflicts in our minds and do not allow us any peace. The way to get over all this is to disassociate ourselves from the events viewed and to associate ourselves with the viewer of the events, the witnessing consciousness. In chapter 2 of the Bhagavad Gita, it says of spirit, which is our true essence, who we truly are, it says, weapons cleave it not, fire burns it not, 
Water drenches it not, and wind dries it not. It is impenetrable. It can be neither drowned, nor scorched, nor dried. It is eternal, all-pervading, unchanging, immovable, and most ancient. It is named the unmanifest, the unthinkable, the immutable. Wherefore, knowing the Spirit as such, thou hast no cause to grieve. So know the Spirit as such, know our true self as such, and we will not grieve. We will not suffer. We are born to be blissful, to enjoy life. We are not here to suffer, and some may choose to suffer. Adam and Eve made a choice to suffer, but we don't have to. Thank you. So, what questions would you like to ask? You mentioned at the outset of your talk that the Buddhist idea of suffering and in fact and the Hindu as well perhaps comes from a karmic there's a karmic element to suffering and then further on in your discourse you said that if you want to know about the suffering understand the moment understand your present circumstances and work through the ignorance to find out what this suffering is to understand the suffering so a simple person like myself would see those two ideas as conflicting yes can you help Yes. What is meant by, say, the Hindu Buddhist point of view is that your past actions determine your present events. All right? They do not determine how you will respond to it now, but they will determine the events. So let's say, and just take something very mild, according to this tradition, if you did something of a negative status, what will happen is you'll get the flu in this life or something like that. Okay? So along comes the flu. But whether you become a miserable person or not is not determined by a past event. The flu is. But how you respond to it is determined by you now. So, that's how you reconcile both. The event, according to the Hindu Buddhist tradition, is determined by past actions. And then the other statement is that what you need to do is see what am I doing now that is causing the suffering now and what you're doing ordinarily with the flu is you're resisting it you say I don't want it I don't want this flu it's like we take out mortgages and then we don't want to make the repayments it's the same thing thank you (laughs) the way you should see a mortgage repayment is that you're reducing your debt so it's something to be extremely grateful for. So if you get the flu, you say, thank you. You've paid off some of your debt. And unlike the building society, God doesn't charge interest. <laughs> Which is pretty decent. Yes, somebody else. Or anybody else. Yes. 
Can I just ask, what is, do you think, or do you think at all about this, the link between psychiatry and philosophy? Well, there is a link. Now, a psychiatrist might disagree with me, but that's it. Psychiatry starts really from the mental and emotional world and moves outwards, or down the river. Philosophy, or true philosophy, or real philosophy, as I would define it, goes beyond the mind and heart to spirit. So it is possible to be a psychiatrist, and even a very, very good psychiatrist, without acknowledging a spiritual world. What philosophy, or at least the philosophy of the school of philosophy, says is that's not the beginning. It's not the source. And just as if you want to understand a river, you can't go halfway up the river and then travel down it and understand why the river is the way it is. If you want to understand a river, you must go to its source and then travel the whole way down. So the difference between philosophy and psychiatry is that philosophy goes to the source of the river, or the source of everything, which the philosophy of the school of philosophy would say is spirit or consciousness or awareness. And only with that can you get complete understanding. That would be the difference between the two. Thanks. This gentleman here. Sorry, if you just wait for the microphone, that's okay. Otherwise, your question will not be immortalized. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, don't worry, I'll edit it out if it's not up to scratch. <laughs> I'm, only, I'm only joking now, right? <laughs> no, I was just wondering, you were saying the big moment in terms of when you were grieving, that afterwards you never or didn't grieve uh, in that depth again. No, not, not even any depth. There was yeah. no grief. There's been freedom from grief. And so I was wondering, were you aware of philosophy before that, or was it as a result of that? Or Well, if I just briefly tell the story, the full version is too long. The grief, when this young lady died, and I was 19 at the time, it was horrendous, absolutely horrendous. So all the normal features of grief were absolutely present, the anger, the bewilderment, the desire to end one's life, all those sort of things. And so this went on month after month for about three or four months. I'm supposed to be at university. I'm not interested in a degree or qualifying or anything like that. So I'm sitting at home most days. On this particular day, I'm sitting at home, and it's about 9.30 in the morning. And I'm in this rocking chair. And there's French doors out to the garden and I'm rocking away in this chair and the sound in my mind is I just want to die. Okay? So I'm rocking away backwards and forwards. Then suddenly something made me turn to the left, turn my head to the left. And looking to the left I saw the kitchen table. And on the kitchen table was the empty bowl from which I had eaten my cereals from that morning. Beside the empty bowl there were three cereal boxes. Now, I won't bother naming them because the brands are not relevant. <laughs> you should hear the long version. There's this bowl, empty bowl, and there are three boxes of cereals. And from nowhere, the question arose in the mind, if I hate life so much, why did I pick my favourite cereal? Now, 
in a moment all the grief dissolved. And then a second question arose in the mind. What happened was, I was looking down and I saw this chest expanding and contracting as the air was taken in and went out of the body. And I said, if I hate life so much, why am I breathing in this air? And in that moment I realized that I loved life and I got out of the chair. And that was the end of it. And it never came again. So that was all before philosophy because I was 19 years of age. And then many years later philosophy came into the life. That was a magical moment of release but with no understanding. Does that make sense? It was just release. Afterwards philosophy confirmed that release. And it just never went away again. And one has buried people who one absolutely loved. And as I was saying to this gentleman during the refreshment break, that there's always been a very clear choice. And when somebody has died since then, that there is a choice, an absolute choice, that one can grieve or one can be grateful. One could be grateful that that person was in my life for five hours, five weeks, five years, 25 years, 50 years, or whatever. And the emotion chosen each time has been to be grateful, to be remarkably grateful to the great people who have been in this life. So, that's the way it's worked. No problem. Then this lady here. I'm wondering if you're speaking of existentialism when you speak like that? Well, if I knew what existentialism was, I, I might be able to confirm if I was speaking about her or not. Now, I have very little understanding of existentialism, and my understanding of it would cause me to say that I'm not speaking of it. If you would define existentialism for me, or if you could, can you do that in a, in a sentence or two, and then I'll, I'll say whether, no. where the difference might be. I can't really, not in a sentence. I probably couldn't even in a book. Right, okay. But it's a very, very difficult term to explain or to get a grasp of. It's more feeling, I would say, rather than anything that semantics yes. would get you close to. But what you're saying sounds very, very like existentialism to me. All right. Well, i tell you what we'll do. I'm going to look up what existentialism is. If you come to the next talk, I'll answer the question. <laughs> okay. In a nutshell, it's similar to living outside of one's emotions. Not, not being dominated or even in any way persuaded by your emotion, but living very distinctly apart from, yet attached to. It's a very difficult concept. Yes, okay. Well, what I would say is this, is that the philosophy of the school of philosophy, which I hope is reflected in the talk that's just been given, would say that the truth about yourself is that you are spirit or consciousness or awareness. And that that spirit or consciousness or awareness is beyond the emotions, beyond the mind, and beyond the body. And in fact, the body cannot affect it, nor can the mind affect it, nor can the emotions affect it. However, that consciousness can use, effectively use that body, mind and heart to express its essential nature 
through the heart, mind and body. So the detachment from it is not isolation from it, but is simply, if you want to call it, divine detachment or divine indifference, rather than separation. Not being a slave. Exactly, absolutely. That is existential. All right. Well, then I've learned something tonight. That's excellent. <laughs> no problem. Thank you. Anybody else? Yes, there's a gentleman there. I'm just assuming from what you're saying that you'd agree that suffering on that basis is kind of a blessing because clearly without it, if what we're trying to get is freedom from or finding the source of what we are or who we are, without suffering we wouldn't have any reason to strive towards that or to move towards that. So in a way, without suffering, we would never have the opportunity to find out who we truly are. Would you agree with that? To a point, if I have understood what you've said. It's not that suffering is necessary, that the discovery of who you are in truth necessitates suffering. But if suffering does visit your life, you can make use of it. Yes, it's an opportunity. There is, in fact, no obstacle to you discovering who you are. So whether good fortune comes your way, or suffering comes your way, or adversity comes your way, both can be utilized. And the question is, are you going to embrace all of your life, or only the good bits? The trouble about pleasure is that you tend to fall asleep. You'll notice this, if people stroke your hand, you go into a little bit of a dream. You know? No. <laughs> right? And you think, and you think, who needs God? Right? <laughs> you know? I've got what I wanted. Right? The trouble about pleasure is that it can make you temporarily satisfied. The marvellous thing about pain is it won't leave you satisfied, not even for a second. So pain makes you move. So just like, let's say you're all sitting as you are sitting now, and let's say you're not sitting excellently, so that a pain arises in a particular limb in the body, you will move to relieve that pain. If you get extremely comfortable, you just might go asleep. So pleasure and pain, good fortune, bad fortune, they can all be used, and the wise man or the, the wise aspirant, spiritual aspirant, will use every aspect of life to help his or her journey. But it's not obligatory. You shouldn't leave this room going out looking for a bit of suffering to help me on my way. Or you shouldn't cause it to others saying, I'm simply helping them on their way. <laughs> if I didn't love them so much, I wouldn't cause them to suffer so much. That would be erroneous. Is that okay? Yes. And then there was, uh, I think, uh, yes, this gentleman here. Just there. This topic of suffering is, I think, occurs to many of us in, in, in the context of illness, and particularly unexpected illness, or yeah. the tragedy of cancer, those kind of things. And I'm thinking of it, though, in a different way. The suffering of Jesus, for example, as redemptive behavior, chosen against his will, but with his will. And I'm just wondering whether or not you could just kind of walk through a little of these ideas from that point of view, because that's a, a point of view that we don't normally engage when we think about suffering and pain. 
Yeah, again, if I've understood your question correctly, the example that the Shankaracharya gave of his guru, who took on the pain of his disciple in order to relieve the disciple, that is a very, very, very minor example of what Jesus took on in a much more glorious level. That is possible to take on other people's suffering. It is possible to do it. You can relieve the other of suffering without suffering yourself. And this is the most important thing. So, if I just take a very mundane example now, it's a very low-level example, but when somebody has a problem and they're very distressed, even your listening to them is sharing their suffering. What you will find is that in your listening to them, you give to them your presence, your awareness, your consciousness. That actually feeds them. That is what is feeding them. And in feeding them that way, they're giving you their misery and you're giving them back your awareness or consciousness. They then leave the meeting saying, that was fantastic. Even if you've said nothing, they feel as if the burden has been lightened. Now, if you've got a compassionate heart, their suffering will have entered your heart. The danger is, is then you become weighed down by their suffering. So it's a bit like they pour the poison or their poison into your mouth. It's important that you don't swallow. So the minute they leave the room, you spit. <laughs> you spit it out. And that's the most important thing. Again, if I just use an example by the Shankaracharya, what he said was that compassion is a natural human emotion. And that is the willingness to share the suffering of others and relieve them of that suffering. But he said there is compassion under ignorance and there's compassion under wisdom. And compassion under ignorance is where you're moved by the misery of another to become miserable yourself. And so now we have a doubling of the misery of the world. Because we had one person miserable and now we have two people miserable. Then the compassion under wisdom is where you're moved by the misery of another to remove the misery in the other. And now we have an elimination of misery. So it's very important that the feeling of compassion for the suffering of others leads to action to remove the suffering in the other rather than just, oh, I feel so sorry for you and you go home miserable yourself. That is of no benefit to the world or yourself. It simply drains you of the energy to help others. It is a fantastic thing to do. Now, you may not have the disciplines which the Shankaracharya's guru had where he obviously had the ability to physically remove the pain in another and take it into his own leg. That's a skill that I don't seem to have, all right? But it is possible to take on the misery and suffering of others. And I, I've said this before, and I'll just say it out of honour to Leon McLaren. Leon McLaren is the man who founded the School of Philosophy. And I was blessed to spend a certain amount of time with him and to be at a, quite a number of meetings with him. There were times that he would come into a meeting and there would be a hundred people or eighty people in the School of Philosophy in Ireland or Australia or whatever, but if I just take Ireland. So there'd be, let's say, eighty darkened souls sitting in this room, all miserable, feeling they were making no progress, trapped in ignorance, etc., etc. And he would come in and he would begin to speak. Speak the truth about the self. 
And what you would see, if you watched, you would see 80 souls getting brighter and brighter and brighter and be lightened or enlightened. Okay? Now, because I was asked to become the head of the School of Philosophy in Ireland, then at the end of the meeting, when he went back to the room to rest, I would go with him. As I said, he would be like a sort of godlike when he was in this meeting, uplifting everybody, and then he would go back to the room, and he would sit down, and he would be ice cold. Right? And no matter how much coal you put on the fire, and how many blankets you wrapped him in, his body would be shaking like this. Because what had happened was, he had taken all the doubts and misery and darkness off 80 people, and taken it onto himself. And sometimes it would take him 30 minutes or an hour while he let it go. An hour later he'd be fine. But it would take a while for him to let it go. That's because he had a very compassionate heart. So you can do that. But you need to do it wisely. Because if you swallow the poison, you only kill yourself and then you're no good to anybody. So you have to learn to be able to take the suffering of others and then, if you want to put it, pass it back. So that you go free, the other person has gone free, and you go free as well. And that is a fantastic thing to do. And all counsellors and good psychiatrists and psychologists and psychotherapists, this is what they do. This is what all people who listen to other people do. But the main thing is to make sure that you're not damaged by the misery of another. You don't do that by freezing your heart. You must leave your heart absolutely open so the person can pour all their troubles into your heart, but then you must learn how to deal with it. I'll finish by saying this. When I was asked to be head of the School of Philosophy, I thought there might be a secret volume of how to be a leader of a School of Philosophy. You see, and I, I thought it would be at least 800 pages long and there'd be all these tips of how to do it. Anyway, so I'm now head of the School of Philosophy for about 25 minutes and there is no volume coming from anywhere to be presented to me. Leon McCarran only gave me two pieces of advice. The second piece is not relevant to your question so I'll just give you the first one. He waved his finger at me and it was a very dangerous finger by the way. Right? So he waved his very dangerous finger at me and he said replenish your energy. Right? And I've always remembered that. Because if you are say head of a school of philosophy or whatever people do come to you with their problems and you try to help them there is an exchange in excellent circumstances they pour poison on you and you give back healthy energy if you're going to do this then you must learn to replenish it. so in the school of philosophy the greatest single way of replenishing it is through meditation it's absolutely essential that you replenish your energy every single day. And again, I'll just say it like this. What we tend to do is we have lost the knowledge that the day is the unit of life. We have now turned it into the week or the month or the year. So what we do is we overwork and then we try to recover on our holidays or we overwork from Monday to Friday and try to recover at the weekend. What the Shankaracharya said is this does not work. That would be like not eating for six days a week and then eating like a pig on Sunday. 
or not sleeping for six days a week and then sleeping all of Sunday or all of Saturday and Sunday. That would make you very unhealthy. So the unit of life is the day. And every day must have the appropriate amount of sleep, work, play, food, drink, etc., etc. If you can't get the day right, you won't get the week right. And you won't get the month right. You won't get the year right. And you won't get your life right. So the key is to find the measure of the day. And so you should sleep well, really well, and wake up full of energy. In the school of philosophy, then you would meditate. So not only do you have that all nice bubbly energy, you get that very fine, fine energy. And then you spend it during the day. The whole thing is you don't hold on to your energy. Energy is for spending. So you spend it living a glorious life and trying to help others live glorious lives. And at the end of the day, you meditate again, so you go to bed full of energy as well. Rather than crawling into bed and saying, oh God. (laughs) Most of us live our lives with a red light on empty and not a petrol station in sight. So we live in fear of running out of energy, so we start to become cautious with our lives. We try to make our lives smaller so we can last longer. It's like knitting slower so you can finish the pullover before the wool runs out. It doesn't work. (laughs) It doesn't work. So anyway, he said, replenish your energy. So I've never forgotten that. Let's say, for anybody, even you find yourself just as a family man or family woman, or just that you're a good colleague in an office, you give your energy freely to others. But you make sure you replenish it. So you have to find your way. So, okay. Yes, anybody else? Yes, this lady here. I'm just wondering, would you like to tell us what the second piece of advice was again? <laughs> <laughs> oh, Warren, I shouldn't have said it, but anyway, I will say it. The second piece of advice was, you may have no friends. And the marvellous thing about Mr. McLaren was that he would make these very enigmatic statements and he wouldn't give you the explanation. And that was excellent that he wouldn't, because it meant you had to use your own mind. An answer given by another is never as good as a self-discovered answer. Does that make sense? When it's self-discovered, it's so easy to understand it. When it's given by another, you can reject it or just accept it and put it away somewhere. What I did was I went to my bedroom and I lay on the bed and I said, what does this mean? Now, it was very obvious that the logic wasn't that I should make everybody my enemy because there's no wisdom in making everybody your enemy. So, you may not have any friends could not mean that everybody should be my enemy. That came to me very quickly. So, what did it mean? And what it meant was that I must love and treat everybody equally. There can be no preference. So that one cannot judge somebody, whether they're male, female, young, old, intelligent, stupid, nice or appalling. We have a the occasional appalling person in the school of philosophy, believe it or not. (laughs) Anyway, when this became clear to the mind that this is what was required, 
to treat everybody as one's own self, I broke out into a cold sweat, right, and it started to pour down my face and underneath the collar of my shirt. Because what came to mind in a single vision was all the people that drove me insane in the school. And I thought, oh, for God's sake, (laughs) I'm not going to be able to do this. In some cases, because of this nature and the limitations of this nature and the temperament and its likes and dislikes, some other natures are particularly challenging for this one. It's nothing to do with that nature, it's the combination. It's like the dog and the cat. The dog chases the cat, there's nothing personal about it. Right? So, you know, it's not the cat's fault. And it's not really the dog's fault. If you have those two natures, the dog will chase it. So, there was a lot of work. Because it was very easy just to be naturally drawn to those whom one found pleasant and likeable and easy to get on with and all that sort of stuff. I just say one thing that I then resolved to do, which has been very useful. I resolved that I would never refuse to meet anybody. Never. No matter how busy I was, no matter how many times they came to me, no matter how many times one had given the same advice, (laughs) and they came back again not having taken it so that I would never refuse to see anybody and that was extremely liberating because you know the way sometimes if people say well look would you like to meet for lunch or something you think well do I want to or don't I want to and you can be trapped in I want to I don't want to whereas in this the idea that one would simply say yes all the person says can I meet you? You say, yes. And that's absolute freedom. Absolute freedom. Because there's no internal consideration. So that was a very useful resolution. So that was the second piece of advice. So there is no book. Yes, anybody else? Yes, this gentleman here. We all make choices and everyone has different lives. Do you think that Everybody is where they're supposed to be at any given time. Although we think we're making choices, but it's the universe which is making choices for us to bring us to become a better human being or consciousness or whatever that may be. Okay, well, there are different viewing points on this. So I'm going to just give you a viewing point. The viewing point is is, is, uh, accepting the law of karma of cause and effect. As you sow, so shall you reap. If you accept that law, which is proclaimed in all the great religious and philosophical traditions, if you accept it, it means that what you're reaping now has been sown previously. And it's under law. So there is no injustice in it. As I said in a different talk, if you see a farmer planting wheat, You don't say to him, by the way, are you expecting a banana crop in three months' time? He would think you're insane and from the city or something like that. It's very obvious if you plant wheat seed, you get wheat. And the law of as you sow, so shall you reap, or the law of karma, says that whatever you sow, you will reap of that kind. So if you sow bad things, you will get bad outcomes. If you sow good things, you will get good outcomes. So it's totally lawful. 
That's the first point. The second thing is, is it the law of a tyrant and a dictator who simply uses law to exploit and make people miserable? If you accept the concept of a creator and a loving creator, then the law is for happiness and happiness only. Let's say the law of Ireland is if you drive on the left-hand side of the road. That is not to deprive us of the pleasures of driving on the right-hand side of the road. That is to protect us and make our driving a happy experience. If everybody will obey the law, then it's a happy experience, happy, safe experience. If we accept the concept of a creator, then this law is for happiness. On that basis, the events of life are for your happiness. They're for your growth. So nothing ever happens to you that shouldn't happen to you or is bad for you. It's your opportunity. Now what is not predetermined by the law of karma is your response to it. If I could just divert for a second, and I've told this story before. I was chairman of a particular company, and I was a minority shareholder in that company. And the managing director of that company was and is a good friend of mine. And he had a larger equity stake than me, but he was the managing director and I was the chairman. Okay, And he was not working out. I, he was not working out him being managing director. According to the board and the other shareholders, he was not fulfilling his function satisfactorily. So I was given the delightful task of informing him that his services would no longer be required. Now this is a man that you know I knew for 20 years, good friends, etc., etc. So I, I went into his office and told him that we, the company, were going to sever his employment and that it wasn't working out. He got unbelievably angry, as you can imagine, with me. I said to him, look, anger is not going to change the decision. This is the fact. This is the way it is. But he was very, very angry now with me. He was directing it towards me, again, which is understandable at one level. So I said to him, I'm going to write something on a piece of paper. And my advice to you is to reflect on this. The extent of his anger caused me to fear for my life and that gave me a moment of inspiration (laughs) as as these words from the imitation of Christ by Thomas Akempis came to my mind. My memory of the words are the events of life do not break the man. They only show what he is made of. So I wrote that on a piece of paper and I gave it to him. I said, you should reflect on that. So he read them there and then and he said, That is fantastic. Thank you so much. He shook my hand. And he went off. This is irrelevant at a lot of levels, but he went off to become a highly successful businessman, a multimillionaire and all that sort of stuff, which is excellent. And we have remained good friends. So, the event may have been predetermined if you accept this law, but what is not predetermined is that he should become angry resentful, embittered, or any of these things. How he chose to respond to that event is the freedom of man, the conscious being. And in order to be free, it's important to be very still and present and not carried away by emotions and ideas, taking things personally, and why are you firing me, 
and you know, all that sort of stuff. Yeah. So, everything that has happened to you and that will happen to you is for your liberation according to this theory or system of knowledge. So never, never wish for a different life. It's a bit like this. Your only way to liberation is through your life. So certainly don't wish to be somebody else. If you wake up tomorrow morning as Brad Pitt, it may have certain advantages in certain areas of life, but you will be deprived of the opportunity to realize the self or to become liberated. You can only become liberated through your life. Is that okay? For that reason, you must welcome all of your life, good and bad, and respond to it and see what is it teaching you. And just like the adversity of this young lady dying when I was a young man, it could have done two things. It could have made me absolutely afraid of death forever. Maybe afraid to love again because the pain was so horrendous. Or it could, in that regard to life, liberate me. So that's ready, yes? Very good, thanks. Okay, no problem. Sorry, if you just wait, or else we will not hear what Oscar Wilde ever said. He said when he was imprisoned for his homosexuality, he says, circumstances do not make the man, they reveal him. Very good. It's just exactly what you were speaking of. No, absolutely. Absolutely. No, very good. Yes? Anybody else? What's kind of the relationship between perfectionism and is it just kind of do your best as you see your best or no, do I you do, know what yeah. I mean? Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. Perfectionism is a curse. A curse. As anybody who lives with a perfectionist can verify. <laughs> it's a curse. It is not the product of a search for excellence. It's born of a fear of being a nobody. It is the belief that through my work I can prove to the world I am great. But with the deep down belief that I myself am not great. The perfectionist is never happy. The work is never good enough. Particularly other people's work is never, ever, ever good enough. So the perfectionist is condemned to be eternally miserable. <laughs> All right? and to inflict as much misery as he or she can on everybody else. Now, the story of the talents is an outstanding story in the Bible. Just outstanding. It has so much in it. The brief version, if you may remember, is you've got the servant who's granted five talents, and the servant who's granted two talents, and the servant who's granted one talent. And the servant with the five goes off and uses his five talents and turns them into ten. And he comes back to the master, and the master says, you know, I gave you five, and you came back with ten, excellent servant, and he rewards him. And the guy who got the two went off and turned it into four, and he came back, and he was also rewarded. The guy who got the one, out of fear that he might lose the one, buried it, and came back with the one. Now, you might have thought he was a pretty decent bloke. At least he didn't blow it in the bar. But in fact, he was referred to as a wicked and slothful servant. And that is very significant because man is granted talents. He's the greatest of all the creatures. 
but he is obliged to multiply his talents so that if he's got one, he should double it at least. And if he's got two, he turns it into four, five, ten. If you've got two, you will not be condemned if you don't turn it into seven. Because you're not asked to turn it into seven. Four is success for you. And for five, if the guy who got five turns it into nine and say, but sure I did better with the guy who turned the two into four, that's not good enough. If you get five, the goal for you is ten. And a very simple example of this in sort of modern life, when Special Olympics came to Ireland, did you see the Special Olympics? I thought it was just amazing. Just fantastic. Now, I'd make up something. You saw people running the 100 metres in 47 seconds. Whereas Usain Bolt can run it in 9.8 something seconds. So at the level of running fast, it's pathetic. I could probably still do it in 47 seconds. But for a person with special needs, it's absolute success. Isn't it? And it melts your heart and you think, oh my God, that is brilliant. Because the correct emotions and the, the endeavour and everything is fulsome. You don't have to be as good as anybody else. You should never, ever, ever compare yourself to another human being. And you should never, ever, ever compare another human being to another human being. So don't ever compare little Freddy with little Mary. That'll only make Freddy wish to kill little Mary for being such a neat person, <laughs> or whatever it is. The greatest insult you can ever do is to compare one human being with another, because each is glorious in their own right. So success for a human being is not being number one, it's not beating other people, but I'll say it like this, but it's beating your lesser self. Does that make sense? It is doing your best. So, if a special needs athlete can run the 100 metres in 47 seconds, that is success. If Usain Bolt can do it in 9.82 seconds, that is success. If Usain Bolt does it in 35 seconds, that's not success. For him, the goal is 9.82 seconds, let's say, and for the special... Olympian, it's 47 seconds. So the only question you ever have to ask yourself is, am I doing my best? Now, it's a horrible question, because we all know what the answer is. <laughs> so, I'm afraid the words wicked and slothful will be written on your gravestone. <laughs> And it's a very good question to ask. I mean, it's a terrible question, but it's one of these very awakening questions. And when I have the courage, I do ask myself this question. As I look at all that I have been given, you know, my father, my mother, the company of Leon McLaren, a few talents, and a few challenges, and things like that, and I ask myself, well, have I given it my best? And you know when you know that you have given it your best, if you want to know, is when you'd be happy to die right now. But if you want some more time, just a bit more time, <laughs> there's just a bit more for me to do, then you haven't been given it your best.
When you're ready to go, you should always be packed and ready to go. <laughs> and I mean emotionally packed. I don't mean you've got the, whatever they wrap the body in, right? <laughs> that you've got that in your back pocket, right? But you should be emotionally packed. And again, this is a slight diversion from your question. Never, ever, ever die with unresolved issues. Be emotionally packed. Forgive everybody. Resolve all your differences. So that if you are taken unexpectedly, you go cleanly. At the end of every day, clean up your life. This is the other interesting thing. If you're a success, as we would so call call it in the world, you may still be miserable. There are lots of so-called successful people who are deeply unhappy. But if you give it your best, happiness is inevitable. It cannot be denied to you. So the surest way to happiness or real success as a human being is to do your best. The only competition is with yourself. You know what it's like when you, you know, you try to get out of bed on a Saturday morning and there's two of you living in your mind. There's one who says, get out. (laughs) And there's another one who's in charge of your legs. (laughs) And he says, I think this is fantastic. (laughs) And he's determined not to get out. So you have this fight with yourself. Which, of course, is the most miserable experience in the world. To actually be arguing with yourself while you're lying in the bed. So you either lie on or you get out. Let's say the getting out is the better part of yourself. The competition is with the lesser elements. So, for Shane Mulhall, things like irritation or impatience or greed, all these things, these are parts of the lesser aspects of Shane Mulhall. And that's the competition to ensure that greed doesn't rule the life, that anger doesn't rule the life, that impatience, all of these sort of things. Now, if you take it on like that, by the way, if you decide that you are going to give it your best, and that's the challenge for your life, then every day is fantastic. Do you know that? Fantastic. Because every day you wake up and there you're challenged. There's this Egypt in control of your legs that doesn't want you to get out of the bed. All of this, it's just fantastic. So you'd actually never become old. You're constantly facing this challenge to manifest your talents and live your life as fully and gloriously as you may. And that's marvellous. You may die when you're 85, but you'll die young. That's a great way to die. Rather than sucking orange juice watching reruns of Emmerdale for the last 20 years of your life. (laughs) And the only reason you're watching because you can't follow the story and you don't remember originally seeing them anyway. (laughs) So, one last question, perhaps. Could even have a happy question. That would be very nice. We can't end on reruns of Emmerdale sucking <laughs> oranges. I'll have to edit it from the thing. Is there one last question? Yes, okay. I'm wondering if I was to follow your 
philosophy. Yes. I'm wondering if you personally ever have days when you're down, and if you do, can you live what you speak to us? Well, I don't think I have days when I'm down. That's not an experience. There are moments. So there are moments of forgetting, without a shadow of a doubt. It is possible for exclamations and foul language and complaints and irritations to arise in this mind and heart, but they don't really last any length of time. Because if the exclamation comes out or the irritation arises or the anger arises, very quickly memory re-establishes itself. And I've said this before, I think it's very, very useful. Uh, I don't know when it was, but maybe 20 years ago, I made another one of these resolutions. This life is full of very significant resolutions at different points in the life. The resolution that was made about 20 years ago was that misery would never last more than five seconds. More than five seconds. And the five seconds was because I'm a sentimental Irishman and I would allow for four seconds of indulgence in misery and one second to dissolve it. So that's the rule for Shane Mulhall. That's the rule that Shane Mulhall has adopted. That misery will not last more than five seconds. And the experience is, it doesn't have to. It doesn't have to. So, for example, if you take, let's say, the experience of suffering. If you were to hold the words that are in this talk in your heart, there are so many different ways to dissolve your suffering within five seconds. There's 50 different ways. If you don't like that way, you can try the other way. My experience is, is that there are always tools available to this mind and heart to dissolve the misery. And again, 20 years ago, I decided I didn't like misery. I just don't enjoy it. I really like happiness. So I decided I would pick happiness when it does happen, and it does happen, I mean, and, and it's not big events now. It's not big events like Manchester United losing at home now. It's little events like my keys dropping into a puddle. And with this increasingly arthritic back, having to bend all the way down to pick them up and dry them up before I stick them in the little keyhole. That can cause exclamations here, and why does this continually happen to me? They're just irritations. I'm speaking of sadness. Sadness? About what? Manchester United? <laughs> no. We've won the championship too many times. It's impossible to be sad. One has to be realistic. No, there is no real sadness. Are you suggesting then that thoughts and emotions are one and the same? Ultimately, thoughts and emotions are the same. Yeah. We, we describe them as different, just how we experience them. So if we're heart-centred, at the time that we're experiencing it, we say, oh, I feel terrible. If we're mind-centered at the time we're experiencing it, we say, oh, I have a terrible thought in my mind. So they're basically the same, ultimately. But depending on whether we're emotionally centered or rationally centered at the time, we'll describe them as thoughts or feelings. Let's say somebody says to you, you're an absolute idiot, Right? To say that takes about two seconds. Now, you can keep it alive in your heart for 20 years if you want to. 
or you can let it pass. If you let it pass, it lasts two seconds. Now, let's say you can have a second for a reaction. Well, I think you're a bigger idiot. All right, that takes another two seconds. Now you're up to four seconds. Then you've got one second to dissolve it. That's the end of it. (laughs) But I have found it very useful. This five-second rule has been extremely beneficial because it doesn't really give time for the sadness to take root. It presents itself as a sort of a possibility. And it's like a little voice in your head saying, why don't you become sad? Go on. (laughs) You know, you haven't been sad for a while. Go on, go on. And it presents itself as a possibility. It's like if a fly landed on your hand and you just brush it away. It hasn't gained roots in your heart or your mind. All these things, the important thing is to deal with them very quickly. The marvellous thing about misery is that it reveals itself on the instant. You don't feel good. That's it. Like misery isn't some sort of secret. Once misery enters your heart, it reveals itself in the form of, as I said, unhappiness or dissatisfaction. So you know. You know you're miserable. And the question is, are you going to exercise choice or not? Are you going to dissolve it? Or are you going to suffer it or indulge it? The intelligent or the wise or whatever way you want to refer to them, they decide to dissolve it. It really is to do with self-love. Just like everybody else, there has been a diminution in wealth for Shamal Hall over the last couple of years. I can see you're all full of sadness now. As you, <laughs> as you look at me with such compassionate hearts. But anyway, there has been a diminution, a serious diminution in wealth in the last couple of years. So that is a fact. Now, I can add to that by becoming miserable. So I can have a diminution in wealth and be miserable, or I can simply have diminution in wealth. One is a fact beyond my control, and the other one is absolutely under my control. Just as I would not stick burning cigarettes into the palm of my hand, why would I invite misery into my heart? There's no reason. There's no beneficiary to misery. And just if I find a piece of silver paper in my pocket and it's got no value, I take it out of my pocket and I put it in a bin. If there's no benefit to something, you bin it. And there's no benefit to misery, so you should bin it. You should have a little, you know those um, in computers, is it a recycle bin or whatever it is in the computer? You should have one of those little buttons for your heart and you go, <laughs> and bin it. <laughs> so that's it. Thank you very much. <laughs>